0: This podcast is brought to you by Mark Pacata, the CEO of Launch Boom and the author of a new book entitled Crowdfunding The Proven Crowdfunding System for Launching Products, Raising Missions, and Scaling Brands using Indiegogo and Kickstarter. Please listen to podcast number 783, where Mark and Greg speak why crowdfunding is the best way to launch a physical consumer product and dive into specific strategies. Mark has and his team have used to raise over $50 million for their clients. Mark and his team created a system they call Test Launch Scale. This is a technique that allows Mark and his team to test their clients' products in the market to ensure viability before investing large sums of time and money into a launch. If you're interested in learning more about Mark and his new book, please visit his website, At www.launchboom.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this podcast number 783 with Mark Picotta and his new book, Crowdfunded. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I have Charlene Lee with me on this morning, and Charlene is the uh, author of many books, but we're going to be speaking with her about one of our new books called The Disruption Mindset, Why Some Organizations Transform Why Other While Others Fail. Good day to you, Charlene. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Greg.
0: Well, it's good to have you on the show, and I really appreciate it. And for all of those listeners out there that would like to find Charlene on the internet, the best way is to go to Charlene, C-H-A-R-L-E-N-E-L-I.com. That's a great place to reach her. You can learn more about her there. <clears throat> you can see all the things that she's done. We'll also have links to uh, not only this book, but many of the other books that she wrote. Um, Charlene, I'm going to let our listeners know a little bit about you. She's the founder and senior fellow at Altimeter, a profit company. She's the author of five previous books, including the New York Times bestseller, Open Leadership, and co-author of the critically acclaimed book, Groundswell. Named one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company, um, Charlene is an expert on digital transformation and disruptive growth strategies She's a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Business School. She lives in San Francisco. And as we said, we'll have a link to her website on our blog entry here at Inside Personal Growth. So Charlene, thanks for joining us today. And you know, early in your career, you spoke in your introduction about your experience at the San Jose News, which was part of Knight Rider, which was one of the largest newspapers in the U.S. And I thought the story that you told about Knight Rider and the newspaper really set the stage for this book. And if you would, for our listeners, can you tell the story and why you believe this was so significant uh, to your career? Seemed like it was probably a turning point for you.
1: Yeah, it was. Um, I came out of Harvard Business School in 1993. And figured out that I wanted to explore this thing called the internet. Uh, when I graduated, the World Wide Web still hadn't been invented yet. So that's how long ago this was. And I, I decided to go and join a newspaper, which is a little bit counterintuitive because that seems like a dying industry and it, and it definitely was even back then. But I figured that the internet was going to disrupt the way that newspapers work. And, and I'm a big believer that wherever there is disruption, there's opportunity so I went to the San Jose Mercury News, helped them develop their internet strategy, especially around selling advertising. So it was helping develop how that actually worked back in 1993, 94, 95, and had a front row seat to how the internet was was really, frankly, being born out there in Silicon Valley. And it, it, the, the the interesting thing is the San Jose Mercury News and I writer had so many things going for them. They knew about um, disruptive innovation. Clay Christensen was working with them right from the very beginning. So they did so many things right. Uh, but still, in the end, they they couldn't make it work. Uh, and, and so they had to sell the company and no longer exist. And, and it's a complete shame because they were doing so many things right, but still couldn't make it work.
0: Yeah, if I'm correct, it, it was some company out of Sweden or something that uh, actually uh, – Picked up the newspaper? Was that right? Did I? Yes. Did I get that part of the story. Yeah, right? it
1: was yeah. a well. It was a company here in the United States, um, McClatchy, that bought them. But the counterpart to this was another group of newspapers in Sweden um, called Shipstead, and they did mm-hmm. not 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 so many things great. I mean, they're not near Silicon Valley. They're not known for tech in Sweden, but they invested into the internet right from the very beginning, um, and and did so many things wrong, but did some fundamental things right in which they said, this is the future. Whereas Knight Ritter kept hanging on to seeing themselves as being in the newspaper industry and could never move away from that. So everything was done to protect the core, protect the print, protect the newspaper. Whereas Shipset said, newspapers, whatever's going to happen is going to happen there, but we're going to go pursue these new customers Really serve them really well, understand them, and do everything possible, even if it means eating into the profits of our existing business.
0: Well, so, and I think that and you know, yeah, and and that story is interesting, and definitely the the timing of the story. It was a long time ago, obviously. Um, speed forward to today, and then look at where we are with uh, a pandemic, right? And the disruption this is causing in all of business, and I have to throw this question is because I don't think there could be a more disruptive time to business, uh, which is going to require tremendous amounts of innovation. What is your take on what might be the fallout from a standpoint of even if if it's just technology companies? Because they seem probably better poised for this, obviously, than brick-and-mortar companies that are stuck and are really going to feel a very hard economic impact. Um, would you venture to make a a, a, yes. a guess on this for me?
1: <laughs> sure. Yeah, I've been, I've been doing a lot of talking and, and work around this. Um, technology companies are really well-poised because they help companies weather this storm. I, I, again, we literally had a digital transformation forced upon us in, in the course of a week when we all went into sheltering place. And for a lot of organizations, they had to go digital. They had to go virtual literally overnight. So forced this issue that they were just very reluctant to deal with. And in many cases, people found like, oh, it actually works, kind of. It's not like we had to completely shut our doors. And for people who weren't as prepared, they realized they needed to get better at this, which is why the technology companies have been doing so well, because they're filling a need. Now, I, I fundamentally think even as we, we start our economy, go back to our businesses, we are transformed as people, as consumers. We aren't going to look at things the same way we did in the past. We're not going to accept that we can't get something um, on our doorstep fairly quickly, that we can't interact with somebody um, through our phone or online, that we have to wait and call for somebody. Mm-hmm. wait in the store for something. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to expect that we can work from home just as well as we can work in the office, which is going to have huge implications on commercial real estate. So the ripple effects across all of this is that we're constantly being disrupted, but with the pandemic, it has really focused it and fundamentally shifted the way we see the world as consumers and as customers. And we we as businesses have to be able to respond to that.
0: And the behemoths like Amazon continue to push on. And it's just surprises me every day. You know, when you look at the, there's no correlation in the stock market today with relation to the price of some of these companies and what's happening. I mean, it's just, uh, it's pretty phenomenal. So yeah, you state I, I, that yeah, I learned a long disrupt- time
1: ago that, yeah, I, I think a long time ago that you cannot correlate the value of these companies to the actual value they create. So there's, there's a lot yeah, more going on behind there.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's um, you know, it's 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 all our common shared imagination out there as to how the prices of companies go, right? <laughs> and uh, I think that's that's probably how we make this up, and it, it, a lot of it is made up as you go. But one of the things that I found quite interesting in the book is you state that disruption doesn't create growth, growth creates disruption and the most innovative efforts fail because the company focuses on developing innovations without thinking through weather, and now these will create growth and change. Um, can you tell us uh, as to which companies got the equation right and why you believe they got it right? Because you cite many examples and stories in the book, which I think is great because it gives the listeners an opportunity, but who do you think got this right?
1: Well, the story I opened up with is a great example because it's T-Mobile and they didn't do anything radically different in terms of their business model or their technology. Uh, Oftentimes people think you have to have a new technology to be disruptive and and your innovation. Um, And what T-Mobile did is they they basically came up with a new value proposition to say, we're going to be the uncarrier, which is going to do things differently than every other carrier. It, it, that's basically what they said. <laughs> so it's mm-hmm. a branding mm-hmm. campaign. But it, it wasn't just a branding campaign. They changed everything that they did. They changed the way they answered the phones, the way they greeted the customers. They changed the CEO. They changed their contracts. They changed so many things. And in the course of it, completely upended the mobile industry. We no longer have contracts here in the United States because T-Mobile forced AT&T and Verizon to get rid of their two-year contracts. We're no longer tied in. And uh, what the reason why I think this is so interesting is what T-Mobile did. What T-Mobile did that was so revolutionary was listen to customers and give them what they wanted because they were so fed up. They were so fed up with um, these contracts and just not being listened to, not being cared for by the leaders in the space. And t has just been doing a fantastic job over the past eight years, uh, just moving up and up and up, moving from a distant fourth out to the dominant third.
0: Yeah, and there's some of those others that hung on for a long time trying that and knew that they couldn't buck against what was happening. Um, AT&T being one of them and Verizon, as you say, um, but the telecommunications industry for a long time I don't think listen to their customers, and as you said, you look at Sprint and you look at uh, you look at T-Mobile and you look at all of them. Um, they had to do something disruptive, but they put the money behind this to do this and make it happen, um, which I think was really quite interesting. You know, in your book, you speak about the three elements of disruptive transformation. And I think for our listeners, they would probably um, want to know what these three elements are and how can an organization measure their disruptive, disruption quotient, as you mentioned in the book, because you have a, a little formula in there.
1: Yeah, it's a very basic formula so the- to look at three elements. And the elements are a strategy that is focused on your future customers. And, and those are very specific, it's about your customers, but your future customers, not the customers of today. So that's the first element. The second amount is, is a leadership element, but it's a leadership that is focused on driving and creating a movement of people who are, again, focused on those customers. And the third part is your culture. And, and it's a culture that is thriving with flux. It has the beliefs and the organizational systems operating model to sustain disruption over time. And, and and that's in many ways what I was curious about with this book is how is it that some organizations just seem to be easy? Disruption just comes easy to them. They, they never say it's easy, but it just seems like they are constantly out there um, in the news, constantly disrupting, doing new things. Like how do they do this day in, day out? What mm-hmm. does it allows them to do that? It's these three things. And what I ask you to do is, is just give yourself a number, a score between 1 and 10. So it's a little bit relative, but how well do you know your future customers? Are your leaders showing up and creating and actively thinking about creating a movement? And how well-tuned is your culture to, to being the engine that drives that strategy of focusing on those customers? Do you have beliefs that are holding you back or beliefs that are moving you forward? Um, so score those things and, and see where you are and understand which of those three elements are probably the area that you're least ahead of. Um, focus on those areas that aren't balanced with the others, but also double down on the areas that you are doing well and accelerate those areas because those can be your drivers for a disruption strategy.
0: Yeah. And, and we're going to ask you a question later on about this this interview you did or the survey you did with a thousand leaders, but You know, you state that the new technology rarely results in a breakthrough growth, and that you cited Google and Facebook stories about the ability to see the future and direct the resources to chase after the future. Um, How do you help companies, as I see it, kind of, Rita McGrath was on here about her book, Seeing Around the Corners, and you used a term to me that was pretty close to that, which is really, predicting the future, kind of seeing where everything is headed. How do you help companies see around the corners?
1: Yeah. Um, so Rita who's a friend of mine, I, talks about seeing around the corners and these inflection points and whether you see them or not. And, and then more importantly, mm-hmm. can you act on them? Do you have the wherewithal to act on them? And, and what I do is I, I, I help organizations see the future so that they can act on it. And, and this is why that seeing the future customer is so important. If everything in your organization, everyone in your organization is focused on the future customer and then has the ability to have their voices heard and filtered and understood and you see and recognize these patterns, and then everyone's aligned to go after them, after these future customers and understand who they are, that's the most important thing. So when I go into an organization with a new, with, with a new engagement, I ask to be allowed to walk around the office for an hour. And I go, I need to be able to talk to anybody. And they're like, what are you going to do? What are you finding out? I'm like, well, I'll be right back. And I ask whoever I can find three questions. Tell me what your strategy mm-hmm. is. Tell me who your future customers are. And show me your dashboard. And that, just being able to ask those three questions, coming back after one hour. And I run around and talk to as many different people as I can. I can come back and go, no one understands what your strategy is. We have no idea who your customer is today, let alone in the future. And people's dashboards either don't exist or aren't aligned against what your supposed strategy is. So and, and why do you believe...
0: That. Yeah, now, if, if that is what you find out in a lot of cases, is they don't know who the future customer is, they don't have a strategy, and it's not on the dashboard, it would seem very apparent to me that there's a reason for that inherent in the culture. So are they just too busy chasing their ass, as we say, to try and bring their head up to, you know, kind of look at what's happening? Um, and they believe that what's happening right now is never going to change? Or is what's happened that, that they've gotten into the same old, same old, as Einstein said, you can't change with the same old thinking, right? So wh- what do you see is going on with inside that culture?
1: There's a couple of different things. Some of them have what I call change fatigue. They can point to a time when they did something big, innovative, move things forward, disrupt it. And then they were exhausted from it. So they said, we're still recovering. And I'm like, I get it. But that was two years ago. You know, have you done nothing since then? Mm-hmm. Um, there is a sense that the future is hard to predict because we don't know 100% what it's going to look like. We're going to focus on things that we can predict and manage. So, we can predict what's going to happen by the end of this quarter. We can see what's right in front of our nose because we're rewarded based on us delivering to one hundred percent. So we, we we shorten the timelines, we shorten the expectations, we make sure that everyone's focused on this operational aspect. And you know, six sigma and quality, all of these things are good things, but if they're driving innovation out, and you're just focused on doing the same thing really, really well without ever thinking, is it the right thing? And this
0: is how you get into these rugs. So change fatigue is, you see that mainly. Yeah, and I would say, because I do consulting as well, and I see this when you go into companies, and and right now with the pandemic, um, I would think that it's particularly difficult, but this is the time that they need somebody like you to ask those questions even more. So, what are some of the best practices that you mention in the book that can be implemented to help focus on the future customers' needs? Um, You spoke about this in the book, and obviously, for our listeners today who are out there with this pandemic and they're saying, Hey, I need to do something. I just don't know what it is. What would you (laughs) say it would be to try and focus on that?
1: We know that customers' needs have changed. We don't know in what direction and to what degree. So the most important thing to go out there right now is to go talk to as many customers as you can uh, and, and understand what are their needs, how have they shifted, if at all, how are they thinking about the world, how are their priorities now in relation to your, your products or services, and truly understanding where they are. And then as much as you can, focus on the edge cases, the people who you don't serve well and try to understand, do we choose to not to serve them well because we're focused on our current customers? And could we serve them well if we decided to make them our future customers? Is this a leading edge? Is this a place where we need to go potentially? And if the the key question is, if serving them well also allows you to serve your current customers also really well, then of course it's a no-brainer, go do it. These little Mm -hmm. common denominators. Uh, But what I I talk about is, you know, create a customer advisory board of not your best and happiest customers, but of people who you believe represent that edge, that growth edge of where things are. Because if you don't understand who they are and and have a constant dialogue with them, you're going to be guessing what that future looks like. And you have to build to the future because whatever you start building today is going to come to fruition three months, six months, a year from now. So you're chasing after your future customers, frankly, before they even know what their needs are.
0: This is is
1: really hard for people to do.
0: Well, and and I think one of the big concerns that um, we're facing right now in particular is of the many smaller businesses with all these stimulus packages and so on. How many of those are really going to survive? I mean, none of us has a prediction. But if you look at the bigger companies, not just because they had money, but because I think they think like this. They think like what you're saying, you know, about what's our future customer. Um, Chipotle is a great example during this time of the pandemic. They're doing more business than anybody because their app was so efficient. Um, you look at many places that created apps to do takeout food, but many of the smaller businesses did not have either the resources to do that or whatever, but they adapted. Like you said, they were flexible. Um, They created something that actually uh, didn't reduce their revenue during these times. Um, What would you tell the smaller businesses that are out there today that are challenged by this?
1: I would say the exact same advice, which is go and figure out how your customers have changed with every interaction. Ask them again, don't make the assumption that when you are when you are going to open up the business, for example, if you're doing um, personal care services or you're doing food delivery, um, restaurants and food delivery. Assuming things are going to go back to normal is just not going to be true. So mm-hmm. understanding how your customers are are changing what their needs are, meeting their needs today, even in some sort of limited way, is absolutely crucial. What I love about a customer advisory board, big companies and small companies can do this just as effectively.
0: It doesn't cost hardly anything right. to get a customer to talk to you.
1: And and the other thing that I well, will so say you're is… saying a,
0: a customer advisory board. So take uh, out and find not only just doing a bigger survey, but within that, find some people that could be on an advisory board consistently for you. Is that what right. you're referring to? Exactly. Yeah. That's no, a great idea. Go ahead. And Yeah,
1: and, and I think also this is where you enlist your employees to do the heavy lifting as well, to go and talk to the customers, to have meetings with them, to say, what are you hearing? What are you saying? How do we adjust our offerings so that we can better meet these needs? I, I think in many ways the big businesses are asking, wow, we're at such a disadvantage compared to these smaller businesses because they're much more nimble. They were able to talk to customers mm-hmm. all the time. Uh, and so I, I do believe that small businesses have this advantage, uh, have, have a big advantage in that they're probably in many cases much more able to find and understand what those customer needs are and to pivot very quickly.
0: And I, I think that's true. The question is whether or not they're um, grapped with, with fear. Right, uh, as to what's going to go on and whether or not they'll take that step. But if you're listening, and you're truly listening, her customer advisory board and finding out where your customer's going is truly a great thing. And I think these simple things like this, people forget during these times because it's almost like they get, they get blindsided. So in your chapter on the big gulp moment, you speak about the fear that some companies have had in taking the leap forward. Um, How can companies better prepare to adopt disruptive growth and transform themselves? And, you know, you cited the, the story of Adobe. And I know it well because my son worked there for seven years during this disruptive time. He was a chief design engineer. Tell us a little bit about how companies can better prepare for disruptive growth.
1: Well, what Adobe did is they moved from packaged software into the cloud. It was highly, highly right. disruptive because they were taking two thirds of their business, two billion out of three billion, and putting it at risk. Because mm-hmm. they knew it was the right thing to do, but none of their customers were asking for it. They were all hundred percent happy with the package software. But Adobe right, because they didn't the have to pay
0: all the time. To have it
1: right, I mean, you pay <laughs> one huge fee up front—you know, eight hundred dollars, two thousand five hundred dollars—and then you could use it in perpetuity. What a great deal! Uh, and Adobe mm-hmm. goes, "Wait a minute!" But they're not getting updates, and it, it just wasn't the right business model to create the best experience. So they decided to make this move, and it was a huge deal. And they did a couple of things. First of all, they put a huge amount of time and resources against it. They put the person who was in charge of that product, of the package software, and said, we basically want you to kill your existing business and move it online. <laughs> She's like, That's crazy, right? And, but she was right. the right person for the job. Um, and then they also, again, collected a lot of information about their future customers. They did surveys. They did tests. It, it pointed them in the right direction and they got more confidence, but it wasn't a hundred percent correct. Uh, and then they, they made sure that they had a, a, a tremendous amount of, um of, of champions throughout the business to make sure that people um were really talking to people about like, this is a tough decision, but it's the right thing to do. The executive mm-hmm. team was completely a hundred percent united across this. And and people were describing at the time where people were, like, putting up protests and signing petitions and just up in arms. Their son probably felt the turmoil that was going on at that point. And the executive team constantly, consistently, very calmly said, I hear you. We, that's a great point. We need to take that into consideration, and we're going to move forward. And at one point, they made this big gulf decision, set a deadline. And move forward into this. And then very importantly, they did what they um, what they called burn the boats. They said there's no going back. We're moving forward. We're not going to release another packaged software. If you want updates, you can only get it online.
0: Um, yeah, it was really was about a big, that. Yeah, they were very upset. And my son was right in the middle of it. And one of his biggest complaints was, that The management, at least where he was, there was 9,000 employees there at the time, I don't know what it is now, um, but they weren't spending the time actually listening to the developers either. And so that caused some disruption in of itself, but they did successfully make the transformation over, let's face it. Um, I'm assuming on the other side, they kept most of their customers because they're the only game in town. Uh, There aren't many pieces of software that do what Adobe does. So um, they had a lot of things going for them in doing that. And in your chapter on this disruptive movement, you mention to creative disruptive transformation movement that you need followers, and not just any followers, but people who will step up, lead, and embrace the movement as if it was their own. Can you speak to our listeners about, you call them the five types of followers, that were part of Robert Kelly's study in praise of followers, which was, I think, a Harvard study. Is that correct? That's correct. hmm And what what he wrote
1: about, and, and I just always, always love this, is that the flip side of leadership is followership and that you're crafting a relationship with the people who you are inspiring to take action, to follow you. And what he did was say there were two types, the four, five types of followers, um, dependent on whether they are active or passive, and whether they are exercising independent critical thinking or the dependent and uncritical. Um, and then there are people who are sheep who are very passive and very dependent. So they depend on you to say go here, go there, do this job, and they go okay, bah, I'm going to go off the corner and do my job. Um, there are people who are yes people, so they're very active, but they do whatever you tell you, and they're they're constantly just. Say, accepting what you say, they're not critical. It may be people who are critical, um, but they're passive and it because they don't feel like they're listened to, they're alienated. And then there are people who are survivors who are none of these things, they're just kind of waiting in the middle, waiting for um, some signal to say which direction to move into. But his most important type of follower is what he calls an effective follower. It's somebody who is active, um, but also independent and critical thinking. And I think this is the most important type of follower to cultivate, to find, and to develop a relationship with them, especially if you want to create a disruptive organization, because you want all these people to step up into the void, to step up as leaders themselves, take on the mantle of leadership, and push forward with the strategy to meet those customer needs. Because when you have a movement, an entire organization doing this, then you can actually move fast and, and, and do a lot of change.
0: Yeah. And it takes a lot of people that are aligned to create this movement. And you talk about in the book, the three ways you found to build a movement. I I think we've seen a lot of movements that have tried to make it and they haven't succeeded. And then you see others that are tremendously successful, moderately successful. What are these three, three ways you found to build movements that you think could create success that would are sustainable?
1: Yeah, I think the first one is to these followers. It's to find your first followers because they're the ones who define what your movement look like. So really thinking about who in your organization, inside or outside, that you want to bring in, who can be catalysts for that movement because it's about them getting more followers as well. The, the second thing is having what I call a manifesto. A manifesto is a statement of how you think the world could change because, and how it could be better because of this movement that you're creating. So laying it out um, Mm -hmm. in broad terms that can be motivating is, is important. And the third thing I think is is being absolutely consistent in your leadership presence, making sure that you're showing up and constantly saying to people, this is our direction, this is our purpose, this is our mission, this is our manifesto, and making sure everyone is aligned because you don't want movement scattering off into all different directions without being focused on what you are trying to achieve.
0: Well, those are great uh, points and good advice uh, to do that. Implementing it is a different story altogether, because it also takes a particular type of leader. That's going to lead me to this next question. You know, you did a study of a thousand leaders to ascertain what it takes to be a disruptive leader. Um, what did you find out and what are the four archetypes of disruptive leadership that you found out that you put in the book? I thought it was pretty fascinating and it's, uh, obviously was a good research for you and for the book.
1: Yeah, I was trying to distill what is it that makes somebody disruptive and effective as a leader. So I I define a disruptive leader as somebody who drives and creates actual change, exponential change. And I found two factors. one was an openness to change mindset, uh, but then also there were a set of behaviors focused on empowering and inspiring followers. And when I look at those two things came up with four different archetypes. The first one is what I call a realist optimist who's very high in both of these. They represent about twenty seven percent of leaders, and these realist optimists are the ones who, can see that future, but also can lay the groundwork and get people moving in that direction. Uh, that's very different from what I call the agent provocateur, uh, representing about 3% of people. Uh, these are many of my friends here in Silicon Valley, to be frank. They, they get up on stage, wave their hands, and say, "disruptor die, and then walk off, and nothing has changed. Uh, and they don't they do are, anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, nothing. It yeah. feels great. I just in, in, indulge in some great innovation theater,
0: but nothing really has changed. And then, well, it c- there, kind of. You have to have. I mean, you have to have all of these, to be honest with you. Yeah. Because when you well, think about it, there's got to yes. be the motivators to do that to start it, right? There's people that just infuse stuff and they walk away. Let's face it. That's yeah. That's what their that's the what their job is, um, is. You know, when you look at authors, too, I find a lot of authors, just inf- they infuse. But sometimes they don't follow up. They just infuse a lot. They get right. people and, thinking. Yeah, and, and
1: that's great. You know, you're provoking people. And, and the reality is every organization has these archetypes. They may have uh-huh. them in different percentages, but every organization has them. They have what I call the steadfast managers, the, the, the bulk of managers, about 50% who are really good at getting things done, and good at executing, but they don't have a change mindset. So this is like, you know, they keep going forward and, and they just, you know, if you keep their head down and keep operating, they're just really good operators. You pair them with those agent provocateurs and things really get shooken up. Uh, and then the worried skeptics are not open to change and not that great at leadership. They really don't like change. And they actively will fight against it because it means having to change the things that they do. Um, and it takes so much energy for them to to get things to a stable point that when things come along, they're not confident in their ability to empower and inspire people. And they make up about 19, 20 percent of, of, of a population of leaders. Here's my thing, though. I think the worried skeptics are the most important archetype to understand. Because if you do not pull those worried skeptics into your disruption strategy, they will stonewall things. You will—they just become like a dead weight, and you can only go as fast as your slowest worried skeptic. This is going to be funny. <laughs> yeah. And so the way to bring them along is to make sure they believe in your strategy, that they believe that these future customers are worth going after, no matter how hard it is. But then you say to them, your role in this strategy is to think of all the things that will go wrong and to put in place the contingency plans because they can see all the reasons why we shouldn't be doing this. So use that to your advantage and, and and really have them play that role that comes naturally to them. Uh to say, How how do we think about this world from a different perspective, from a Pollyanish optimist perspective? And because and, we know things aren't going to go perfectly to so help us think up like, again, literally sealed on those corners.
0: Well, one of the things that your book does, and especially in this section, is it helps the reader understand what those archetypes are. And those ar- archetypes are very accurate. And I think a lot of people don't even have a clue uh, about the different elements of the archetypes and how these people are thinking. So it really opens up your mind as to the type of personalities you're dealing with. And that leads me to this part about our corporate culture. You know, I went through Richard Barrett's training. Um, one of it was called Liberating the Corporate Soul. And this actually goes back to some training I did up in San Francisco with him. And that's all about corporate culture. And in your chapter entitled Disrupting Your Culture, you speak about beliefs and behaviors of a flux culture. How can you let us on to what the beliefs and behaviors are and why they should evolve within a corporate culture and around these beliefs and behaviors that, just like what you were talking about, could be um, retarding a company's growth? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah.
1: What I found um, some commonalities across all of these disruptive organizations, these three beliefs kept coming up over and over again. The first one was openness and openness to uh, for the purpose of creating trust and accountability in the relationships between people. Because when you have openness, when nothing is left unsaid, when things are never hidden, you, you just know you have information flowing up and down and throughout the organization. Uh, decisions are clearly communicated um, and you understand how decisions are being made, why they're being made. So this openness uh, and transparency across the board and that also then creates a strong sense of accountability that if things aren't going right, everyone can see it. So you may as well ask for help. And in fact, if you see that something isn't going right, you're going to offer the help versus Mm -hmm. being ashamed that things aren't going well. The fear of failure is so debilitating, um, either because things aren't going well or you're afraid to take a risk because it's not going to work out. So you dumb down your your goals. Uh, in, in organizations that are open, things become much more aspirational. And it's not necessarily even about hitting 100%. It's about setting these big, huge, audacious goals. And you celebrate every time you just get even closer to it. So it's not seen as failure we're right. not hitting it. Just celebrating the fact that you just get closer because it seems so
0: impossible, such a terrible hill to have to climb. Uh, so openness well, is the first one. Openness. And our, our conversation is so important at these times. I'll let you get back to the other behaviors because um, I, all I've seen and all that permeates our media is contraction. Um, and you see this everywhere. And I'm hoping that listeners are just like, okay, I'm tired of the contraction and I want to expand. I want to expand my thinking. Um, and I hope our interview does that for him. So proceed forward with the other behaviors. Openness was yes. the first one. And, and just to your
1: point, I just want to reinforce, because you make such a great point. It's so easy to say, it's uncertain right now. I'm going to contract. I'm going to shrink and I'm going to conserve my cash. And mm-hmm. that's what 80% of people, 90% of people are doing disruptors are thinking, oh my goodness, the world has been torn apart. Instead of ducking and hoping the pieces don't hit me as they're falling to the ground, I'm going to jump (laughs) up in the air, grab those pieces and put them together and find that growth, meet those needs, figure out how I'm going to continue to serve. How am I going to create value for my customers? Because there's, there's no greater time than now in terms of the need that's out there. We have so many problems, so many needs. We need to get out of of our chairs figuratively, go out into the world in a safe and sheltered way, socially distant way. But let's go out into Mm -hmm. the world and see where where it is that we can serve because we need to do that. And the more you think about that and and direct yourself towards that, um, I guarantee you when you can feel like you're serving versus hiding, it is so empowering and so energizing. Uh, which, yeah, which goes to my second belief, which is agency. And agency is when employees believe that they are owners of the or of the business. They are not a resource. They're not a cog in the wheel. They're not what I call empowered, because empower implies that somebody you're waiting in the wings for somebody to give you power. Agency says you came in with a with that power. You came in simply because. You are here, a living, breathing person who can observe and understand what customer needs are. And because you understand what the strategy is, you know what you should do and what you shouldn't be doing to address those customer needs. So go for it. (laughs) Disruptive Mm -hmm. organizations have a very, very strong sense of agency that people have the power intrinsically because of who they are, what they do, what they know, to be able to take action.
0: Well... it, go ahead. I know there's more. The <laughs> yeah, third
1: area is that action, a bias for action. Uh, disruptive organizations know that customers are constantly moving further and further away from them. So they act as quickly as they can. They make decisions very quickly um, based on what I call minimally viable data. This is naturally not in the book, but I developed this language afterwards in to school because they kept saying, how do I know nobody to act?" How do I make a decision? And as you go into the process, you lay out not how to make the perfect decision, but how to make the fastest, soonest decision that can give you uh, a sense of what direction you should be heading into. Because once you make that decision, you can see, oh, option A was a good idea. Let's keep going." Or option A is a terrible idea. This is not working out the way we wanted to. You can then reverse, go back. But now you have so much more information about what works and what doesn't work. You can make a better second decision versus making no decision, falling into analysis paralysis and waiting, waiting from the sign from somewhere that it's okay to move forward.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's where a lot of people are, waiting for something (laughs) to happen. (laughs) Exactly. Like there's going to be a prophet, the God prophet's going to come down. I think listening to your intuition right now is a very, very important thing to do and following it, learning how to get in touch with that. Now, Charlene, to kind of wrap up our interview, you have um, this quantum networks And it's a global network of disruptors who support one another. What? And I've gone to the website. Tell us a little bit about it and how people out there today who've been listening to you uh, can get involved in uh, this uh, quantum networks.
1: Yeah, I started it because as I was reading, as I was researching the book, I kept asking people, "You're a great disruptor. What are the resources you go to? Who do you talk to? What what places do you go?" to figure out how to be a better disruptive leader. And they go, I, no, there's nothing, there's nothing out there. Um, and, mm-hmm. and so I wanted to create a community where disruptive leaders could support each other because oftentimes if you're trying to create disruption, you're one of maybe nobody else inside an organization. And it feels incredibly lonely. And it feels like it's you against the entire world and that organization trying to create a change that you think is gonna make things better. So this is a place where I hope to create a safe place where people can explore how to be better leaders, how they can open up in their vulnerabilities, uh, because that's how you grow as a leader, how you grow as a person is by stretching yourself out of your comfort zone. And you do that only when you feel safe that you can expose and, and, and explore
0: these vulnerabilities. So you have a button on the website. It's called Request to Join. Now, is, that, uh, is it a process where they're evaluated, or can almost anybody no, join?
1: anybody can join pretty much. We basically okay. ask that you give us your LinkedIn profile, how many people work in your organization, how you heard about us, and then agree to a code of conduct. I and we hold people okay. to that code of conduct. <laughs> because if you're if you're starting to create not the greatest environment for people when you're not Again, if you're creating toxicity, you're calling out people, that's not the environment we want. So we we are very serious about creating a safe space for us to explore how do we be better disruptive leaders Um, and creating the right community in that tone is extremely important.
0: Well, Charlene, I'm glad that you created that website because it gives us a place to go. Um, it certainly is a loop other than LinkedIn, where it seems to be a place where a lot of people go just to make a connection. But this one is certainly a people who consider themselves disruptive leaders. And for my listeners today, um, we've been on with Charlene Lee. She is the author of The Disruption Mindset and as I said, many other books, which we'll actually list those at the blog. Uh, the subtitle, Why Some Organizations Transform Why Others Fail. Charlene, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth, you imparting some of your wisdom and knowledge about um, how these companies not only work, but if you really want to stay at the bleeding edge, how you're going to create this disruption mindset. And it really has been fascinating. Thanks so much for being on with us.